Hello, Shane Coleman here and welcome to the Top 5 Books podcast where we ask well-known Irish people to talk through their top five books. I'm delighted to say we're joined by Fintan O'Toole of the Irish Times. Fintan, thanks indeed for coming into us. Thanks a lot, Shane. Listen, just before I get to your, your book choices, I, I read a piece from you, just, I have it in, in the back of my head, about growing up in, in Crumlin and uh, talking about how, you know, you came from a working class background, but reading and education was always such a big thing in, in your house. Yeah, I mean, I was blessed, really. Both my parents uh, were fantastic readers, you know, and, and they were self-educated. They both left school at 13, 14, you know. Uh, my father was kind of barely literate when he left school, but kind of classic autodidact, you know, and voracious reader, just read, read, read. So there were always books in the house. You know, my father was always reading second-hand bookshops, and my mother used to take us to the to the library, the public library. I have huge affection. If anybody asked me to speak in a public library, I nearly always do it because okay. I still have great affection for those institutions. Yeah. They were so wonderful and I think I'd read all the children's section. Uh, I think you were, you were supposed to be 14 by the time you got into the adult section. But I think at 12, I put in a special place saying, I've read all the books. Can yeah. I go to the adult section? <laughs> Always <laughs> precocious. Always <laughs> precocious. Uh, it was, though, it was part, I, I hope it still is, but it certainly was part of kind of working class Dublin, though. That passion for learning. I mean, I've spoken to Peter Sheridan about this. And I mean, you know, again, working class background and his father putting on uh, sort of Greek plays and stuff like extraordinary stuff. I'm not yeah. sure. Do you get that in other cities around the world? It was certainly extraordinary here. It was really. And I, I think it was a lot about people's dignity. You know, I, I, I think there was a sense that maybe people didn't get a lot of dignity in their work. And often they were living in difficult conditions, sometimes came from very, very broken, hard families, you know, but there was a sense that if you could read, you could retreat into a private world. It gave you that space. It gave you that richness and texture to your life. And then it also made you capable of holding up your end in conversation, which, of course, it's such a talky city, Dublin. Yeah. But I think that's kind of related to the reading in a sense that, you you know, you want to be able to have something to say. And I think the reading was very much part of that, that culture, I just hope we can hold on to it, you know, yeah. because it, it's now do we a just great talk, Do we just talk about box sets nowadays? That's what uh, yeah, I, I do yeah. sort of wonder about it. But let's get to your first choice. I mean, interesting you mentioned that you'd sort of out, read, read everything in the, in the children's uh, section, which means I presume you'd already read your first choice. Too. Exactly. The first choice is Richmond, Crompton's, Just William. You could pick any of the books and there's probably about 20 of them, but I, I devoured these um, they are fabulous books. Mm. I mean, and I still, I've looked at them again and they're still brilliant books. Now, they're really funny to look back on them because they're really about a, uh, what we would call a juvenile delinquent. <laughs> yeah. William is a sort of ageless kid, so he never really ages. He's always about eight, I think. Uh, and he's a, you know, scamp of a, of, of a boy in sort of, you know, it's obviously in the home counties, middle class England. And what he calls scrapes, you know, we would call crimes. You know, he'd be, yeah. he'd be up, if he was a working class kid, like he'd be, he'd be taken off his parents and put into a reformatory. <laughs> but, this woman, Richmond Crompton, who was, you know, never had any kids. She was, she, she was a kind of a vicar's daughter, I think. And she was a teacher for a while. And, that, and then she got polio. She was disabled. And then she, she kind of started to make a living out of writing. But she had this fabulous ability to unlock that kind of anarchic joy of being a kid. And it's that world of the kids where the adults really don't matter. You know, William's mother is a kind of vaguely disappointed figure and the father sort of, you know, appear, you know, he goes off on the train in the morning and comes, you know, utterly peripheral. And adults in general are just kind of figures of fun. It's an entirely child-centred world and it's completely anarchic. I mean, it's these these gangs of kids who basically do whatever they like. And it sort of reflects my own experience because I I grew up in a time when, you know, kids were just, you were put out of the house, you know, at at school. But even, you know, during the summer, you you, you left. 
you got your breakfast, you were out of the house, you came back for your dinner in the middle of the day, you were out again, and then you came back for your tea at six o'clock or half six or whatever. And what you did in the meantime was kind of vaguely known to adults, or at least they didn't want to know very much yeah. about it, and you just kind of carried on. And it's that wonderful world of adventure and storytelling, you know. So these Just William books have, she's just an absolutely brilliant storyteller, and stuff happens, you know. And it's like the Odyssey. It's like Homer or something. You know? so, so William gets up in the morning and then, you know, he faces all these adventures. There's one story I just absolutely adore where the mother asks him to go to the town, you know, to buy fish. So she's given a shilling or whatever. He gets on the bus. You know, he has a row with the busman. He gets thrown off the bus. He then, uh, he's walking and he meets this old man who's sitting outside his door whittling. <laughs> and William's big uh, concern is coming up to Christmas and he doesn't have any money to buy anybody Christmas presents. So this is going on in his head. So he's fascinated with the whittling and then the old man tells him about whittling and everything. And the old man says, you know, well, he says, would you, would you teach me how to whittle? He said, well, I would if I had my old dad's pen knife, you know. So William says, what happened to your old dad's pen knife? Oh, he left me, he let me, old dad left me his pen knife, you know, in his will. But my brother, evil brother, you know, took it and won't give it to me. And he says, it turns out the brother has a shop in the town, right? So William says, I'll get your old dad's pen knife. You know, so he, he breaks into the shop. The old man goes out, you know, he breaks <laughs> into the shop. He steals the pen knife. There's all sorts of adventures. He ends up sort of hiding in the shop window pretending to be a tailor's dummy, uh, gives a poor kid a terrible fright when the kid sees him move, you know, it obviously causes kind of lifelong trauma, eventually gets out, gets back to the old man with the penknife, you know, learns how to whittle, and it goes on and on, it's just got, and, and then eventually gets gets back, you know, and, and of course he has to solve the Christmas problem because he can, he can whittle presents for his, for his friends. Yeah. But then, of course, he remembers he was supposed to be getting fish. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, damn. And then the mother says, oh, William, I'm so sorry. So foolish of me. I forgot to fish up his clothes on Wednesdays, you know, whatever. And, <laughs> yeah. and that's, but it just, I think for a kid going into that kind of world of narrative, like where just anything can happen. And, I mean, it sounds like a great story. I mean, I, I vaguely remember the books. And I, I vaguely remember that there was a TV series and the, it was his cousin who'd scream and scream and scream. if he, if she Violet Elizabeth yeah, yeah, Exactly, yeah. 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 Um, they're very much of a time. I mean, could kids still read them today uh, and enjoy them? Absolutely, because, you know, like in a way, even then, certainly if you were a Dublin working class kid, the world of those stories was, was so far on anyway, you know. Yeah. And it's just great storytelling and the language is brilliant. I mean, it's clear. It's not sort of stupid or, or dumbed down, you know, but it, it's it's really clear language. And it's just great storytelling. Any kid, and actually boys or girls, I think, would just enjoy it because kids love that anarchic idea. Yeah. And that whole idea of, of being in a child's world where adults really have no power and really don't matter. I think for any kid of any gender in any place at any time, you know, that's always going okay. to be a thrill. Okay. okay, a very interesting choice. Your next choice, I suppose, doesn't surprise me because you, I mean, you're something of a wordsmith yourself and you picked, I suppose, probably the greatest wordsmith that was ever born, ever, that ever lived. Uh, a man who, I don't know how many words he created or many new words, but it's... Millions. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, of new words, yes, actually, enormous. So it's this great factory of language, which, yeah. is, which is Shakespeare, you know. So yeah. I've kind of cheated and said the complete works of That's Shakespeare. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, we'll allow that. You, can, you can't get we've, it in a we've, single book. We've checked with did, our judges. They're nodding happens, their language. So, yeah. so when I was about 13 and sort of not being just William and going off robbing things in, in the summer, my father said to me, you know, well, you should use your summer now. You should, you should, uh, you should read the complete works of Shakespeare, you know. And I said, geez, that's a lot, you know. And he said, that is a lot. I said, well, everybody's read the complete work of Shakespeare by the time they're 14, you know. He said, lying, of course. So I remember sitting in the back garden, you know, sort of plowing through this stuff. And of course, not understanding the vast majority of it, a lot of the language you can't understand, not getting all the dirty jokes, all, you know, not understanding the complexities of it. But nevertheless, being gripped by it because 
That's for two reasons. The stories in Shakespeare people forget are fantastic stories. Yeah. How do we know this? People still make movies. They make movies in Japan. They make movies in Russia. They make movies in China. You know, based the movies on in America. Stories, right? based yeah. On, yeah. Well, and they don't even understand the language. No, yeah. but yeah. you know, it doesn't really matter whether you understand the language or not. The language yeah. is itself fantastic. But the stories are gripping, absolutely gripping stories. And they, you know, they, they're still the best stories about power, about how power works. You know, it's why we come back to them again and again and again. Why would the people keep doing them? Because they, you know, they illuminate the corrupting nature of power. Really, that's what's there all the time. And, you know, as a political correspondent, uh, you can know all about this. <laughs> um, but of course, and then the other thing is the language. You know, it is just this extraordinary, strange, vibrant, dynamic language that's just almost being made up on the hoof. It's almost like you're a new language being invented. And then power of that, the energy of it, the poetry of it, the beauty of it never goes And away. the rhythm of his language. I mean, there's so many lines that stick in your head forever in a way that no other book, I think, does, you know? There's nothing, you know, and, you know, there's the famous kind of joke about the person who, the old woman who goes to see King Lear or something comes out complaining says, oh, it's just full of quotations. <laughs> but, you know, it, the language itself has gone into the language so much yeah. that we often don't even kind of uh, register just, just how much of the cliches that we use today, you know, are, are actually beautiful phrases that were minted by Shakespeare. But is there the, one that jumps out at you? Is there one particular... Well, the, the play, I, I suppose it does change as you get older, you know, but I, I suppose I must be very old because the play that has never gone away from me really over the last 20 years is King Lear. It's the most shocking play. I mean, it's still deeply shocking. And it's the great moment in King Lear where the usual kind of stuff's going on. There's a kind of war. There's, you know, Lear's has divided his kingdom. There's the evil daughters. There's the good daughter, Cordelia. The big war is happening at the end. You think, okay, it's all going to be sorted out. The good are going to win and the bad will be banished. That's the way these things work. And the good do win. And then there's a moment where you've kind of forgotten about Cordelia, who was the lost daughter. And Lear's been kind of mad. And then Lear comes onto the stage holding Cordelia in his arms. She's dead. She got killed. And he's howling. He's just really howling. And it's the darkest moment in all of art. I mean, it's just, you'll never get over it. Like, and for a long time, like for about 150 years, they wouldn't play it like that. So it's so powerful that it was just unbearable for a lot of people. So for about 150 years, actually, King Lear was done in a, in a really awful version by an Irish playwright called Nahum Tate, who was not only forgotten, but we should dance on his grave. But, but, but <laughs> Nahum Tate kind of made a happy ending. Like, he says, you can't bear this. You can't oh, be yeah. like that. And sort of, you know, Cordelia's still alive. And this, the last scene is Cordelia and Lear by the fireside in his old age. And they're all very happy. But there is something about that moment. Because what it says is actually, you know, all this politics, everything that's gone on with power, it's nothing compared to a man mourning his daughter. daughter. And famously, I, I think, um, I was going to say robbed, that's probably the wrong word, borrowed, uh, but in Godfather 3, the very end of Godfather 3, which is, you imagine it has to have been influenced oh, by that, where Michael Corleone cradles his daughter uh, uh, on the steps as she's, as she's utterly, uh, being utterly. shot utterly. And, you know, And Shakespeare's all over everything. I mean, yeah. you know, the idea that he's kind of uh, old. <laughs> Every movie you go to see, uh, The Lion King, for example, yeah. is, is Hamlet. You know, it's all over the place in popular culture and in and in so-called high art. You know, it's everywhere. Okay, all right, great choice. Now you've gone for a real epic as your next choice. Yeah, so I have a confession to make, which is which is uh, War and Peace is kind of a joke, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's 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 sort of jokes about all the time. And well, you know, well, it's yeah. not War and Peace. Yeah. 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 Things, or, <laughs> Pretty or, much everything. Or, oh, it's longer than War and Peace. Or, but I'm not sure we actually read it. And I I hadn't read it up to two years ago. Well, you're the second person I've spoken to yeah. in the last week yeah. who told me that they've read it in the yeah. last couple of years. Yeah. 
I think it's partly because there's a new translation or a translation that came out in, about four or five years ago. And I had tried to read it and I'd, I'd kind of read it in fits and starts and read lots of it, but never really kind of properly read it all the way through. Because I think it was a very stodgy English translations around. And there's one, it's the vintage classics translation. That's the one, if you want to read it, that's the one to read. And it's absolutely fantastic. And the reason I was kind of driven back to it was, funny enough, I was in St. Petersburg and I went to the Kazan Cathedral, which is my cathedral in, in St. Petersburg. And somebody had said to me, when you're there, just make sure you go and look at the tomb of Kuznetsov. And Kuznetsov was the Russian general who defeated Napoleon. And I went and the tomb itself is not that much. But then in the corner, almost unnoticed, are Napoleon's flags from 1812. Wow. Rotting away, they're almost, you know, the ones that were captured on the battlefield in 1812. And of course, it is one of the great epics of human history, you know, Napoleon's the retreat, invasion. Yeah, and the retreat from uh, Moscow. You know, the one thing you learn in life is never invade Russia. General the, Winter, isn't that? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've decided I'm never going to do that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I'll remember that. Yeah. But it was just so moving at that moment to see these actual things. And then, of course, it drives you back to thinking about that sort of enormous epic of human history. And War and Peace, by the way, is like a soap opera. You know, it's not actually hard to read. It's fantastic. It's incredibly exciting. It has these, you know, he's one of the greatest geniuses of all time. But what he's able to do is you, you have these two families extended families and their stories and they're you know they're not just about war and you know they're also about peace they're about falling in love and and jealousy and losing your money and all the usual yeah. stuff that happens to people and then they're brilliantly interwoven with this massive epic so he's he just has this ability you know to go from the micro detail of you know a teenage girl and her her fantasies you know and then you know the next scene is napoleon and his fantasies and of course what's kind of implied in all of this is that actually you know the epic fantasies of so-called great men are are really no more yeah. real than all the other things in life you know falling in love falling out of love all the rest of it and it's it's a great great work of skepticism you know if if anybody ever is inclined to think that there's any glory in war you know it's you have to read this book but particularly in this new translation, which was done, it's, it's a joint kind of Russian-English translation. So it was done by a Russian and, a, and a, an American, in fact. And so it's, it seems to capture the essence of what Tolstoy was about. But also, it's, it, for an English reader, it's, it's really accessible and it just has that great life to it. How long did it take you to read it? Just well, actually, you know, not that long. You know, it's read? funny. It's one of those things you think, ah, you know, it's 1,200 pages. Oh, God. But actually, you think about, well, you know, that's like four novels. Yeah, you know, so just give the time to which you would give to four other novels. novels. Yeah, and actually, I, you know, it's one of those once you get into it, actually. You'll, Did you find you'll yourself find as you were sort of sitting there going, "I really want to pick it up and read it again"? Yeah. is it that kind of? Oh, it is absolutely. It's really rich. It's exciting. It's uh, intellectually very stimulating, but also it just has the kind of you know you think well, uh, you know, how how would you give all the time? Well, actually, it is a box set. You mentioned a box. I mean, it's like we like long form stuff now. Actually, mm-hmm. we've got our culture has changed a bit. Actually, we've got back into the idea of longer storytelling. You know, which unfolds over a longer period of time. And I think anybody who can watch The Wire can read War and Peace. Okay, good stuff. Our guest is uh, Fintan O'Toole. He's going through his uh, top five books. We've had uh, Just William. We've had the complete works of William Shakespeare and uh, War and Peace by uh, Tolstoy. Two left to go. What, what's your uh, second last choice, Fintan? So since we're on the business of uh, very long novels, <laughs> yeah. there's a fantastic novel. I just remember, I, I read this over a summer. It's probably 10, 10, 12 years ago. It's a Vikram Seth's novel called A Suitable Boy. And uh, Vikram Seth's great, brilliant, brilliant Indian writer. This is probably his magnum opus. I don't think he's written terrific stuff since, but I don't think he'll ever write anything like this again. Yeah. And it's, I think it's even longer than War and Peace, maybe. It's maybe 100 pages longer. Oh, but wow. he just had a brilliant, brilliant perception, right? which is that great 
English novel tradition. You know, the 19th century novel, Jane Austen, you know, is all about getting the daughters married off. You yeah. know, that's really what they're about. <laughs> and in a way, that tradition, we can't really, we don't own it in Ireland and Britain anymore. You know, where, where does it really work now? It works in India, which is, you know, he's an Indian writer. Of course, where there's still arranged marriage, you know, where still the idea of getting the daughters married, married off is still a big, big issue. And so, again, this novel is, if you like soap opera, if you like box sets, you know, it has that kind of quality to it. But it's an absolutely stunning piece of, of work because so the, the, it has the basic simple plot, which is you have the girl, you have her kind of fussy, not particularly nice mother who wants to get her married off. She's had a university education, you know, she's a bit different, but the mother is still thinking, you know, I, I've got to find a, suit, a suitable boy for her. And there's basically three successive candidates for being the suitable boy. But through the prism of of their lives, he manages to bring in like the entire modern history of India, good and bad, you know, so so the, the terrible communal riots, the violence, the poverty, the struggles of India. And they all come into it, the, the physical the physicality of India, the taste, the sounds, the smells. It's just absolutely panoramic, you know, and I've never been to India, but, but I have the illusion, you know, that yeah. with this novel, you feel like you're kind of being steeped in a world that you don't know. Well, it has a lushness, India, doesn't it? Well, I've never been there either, but just from, from how it's portrayed, certainly, in, in books and, and film, it has this incredible richness and lushness. And it's this texture again, isn't it? It's yeah. just this idea that of a society that, to us at least, uh, you know, has these, these layers and layers and layers. Uh, historically, socially, of course, some incredibly rigid, hierarchical kind of society, historically... And this is a book that actually kind of manages to bring all of those together. But you never feel for a moment that you're being preached at or that it's didactic. You know, you're you're being immersed into all of this. And it's just, it's a fantastic reading experience. It's one of those books I know I'm going to read again and again, you know, and it's like a warm bath that you can just kind of relax into. Uh, that makes it sound like it's kind of uh, meaningless, but it's not because like a warm bath can do as well. It kind of heightens your senses and it makes you aware of all of this kind of both information and sort of sensuality that you, you wouldn't have experienced otherwise. And I could just really recommend it to anybody if you're looking for a long read that's going to take you out of your own world and into another world, which yeah. is what great reading does. It does. Uh, is, did I imagine this or did I hear there's a sequel coming out? A, a suitable girl, I think. is the, Yes. So the great hope is that there is a sequel on the way. Uh, there's been no date put on it and I mean he's been a bit dilatory you know I mean it's only what 1300 pages or whatever you think he might have managed but uh, (laughs) I I mean I think it would be thrilling if there were and of course it would make complete sense because in terms of thinking about social change in India since that book came out you know and 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 of course the whole issues of gender and all that sort of stuff must be so so very difficult and and very angular in in India now it would be fascinating to see what, Mm. what he has made of all that in the meantime so it would be a dream if there is. Yeah, okay. What's that one interest? Come here, you've picked four really interesting, four great books. No Irish writer there, though. Are you, are you going to rectify that? I you? am, I am. So I, I did look at the book and I, I, of course, like, I, you know, I could have picked 20 different yeah, books. Yeah, no, I know, and, I know you're and, a you champion know, yeah, Irish writer. You know, people yeah. like Flat O'Brien and James Joyce and Samuel Beckett is a kind of huge obsession of mine. And there's, there's loads and loads and loads You're a fan stuff, of Sheridan, but, I know, as well. Uh, uh, absolutely, you know, there's, there's, there's books and stuff. But, I thought it would be interesting just to talk about a recent Irish book. So you, you kind of always wonder, there's obviously fantastic books have been coming out in the last uh, 10 years, a lot of new writers, terrific writers. But you kind of wonder sometimes, do we still have that thing about language, you know, the hallmark of Irish writing, you know, it's that linguistic inventiveness and the ability to try to sort of take language apart and put it back together again in a new way. And for me, the most exciting writer who has done this in the last 10 years is Emer McBride, 
her novel A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, which came out, it's kind of classic story, you know, she was trying to get it published for 10 years, had more or less given up, and uh, a tiny, tiny, tiny little press in Norwich, of all places, you know, it's kind of picked it up. And then it's, you know, it's won huge numbers of awards and it's 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 been made into a very strong uh, theatre performance and, and various things. And her second novel, I think, will come out next year. But what really impressed me about it was that it just has a completely distinctive voice. So if you look at it on the page, it just looks different. You know, it has no sense in structures. It doesn't have full stops. It doesn't have, you know, that, which I know people have done before. But it does this in a very particular way. And what she's trying to do is to sort of do something really very profound, which is it's about... Abuse, you know, it's really about a girl who's who is abused, and then what happens to her, you know, what what it does to her to her mind, and even the title, "A Girl's a Half Formed Thing," is kind of saying, well, actually, you know, why does this stuff really hurt? And really hurts because it sort of stops the development of a child. You know, it sort of freezes you at a certain kind of moment, and so what she does then is she kind of creates a language which is like, what's it like to be stuck? What's it like to be half formed? You know, a person who's not really there, and she does this in a way which. I mean, it sounds very, very grim, you know, and a lot, if you were to describe what happens in the novel, you know, you think, oh, God, I just don't want to read that, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's too grim. But actually the sheer inventiveness of the language and the way it sort of puts a distance between you and the experiences being described makes it utterly mesmerizing. And it gives you a great sense that, you know what, the Irish thing is still working. You know, there's, there's still a way in which Irish writers have a, a, a very distinctive attitude to language. And... It seems to be almost that, I have a theory about this, which is that Irish writers are very afraid of being garrulous. You know, we, we have a natural loquaciousness in Ireland, mm. which makes for bad writing in a way. And there's a lot of bad writing, you know, because the easier it is to use language, the easier it is to talk, the worse it's going to be on the page. And so what Irish writers, and one of these were so inventive is they almost have to make barriers for themselves. They have to make it really hard. They have to try to find ways of writing that are, Almost impossible. You think you can't, you can't do this. You can't sustain this kind of weird style over over a book. And so, th- by making it so hard, it makes it kind of hypnotic in a way, because it's like somebody has to suck you into their not just the world of a book, which every book has to do, but into the way in which that book's been constructed. And Emer McBride, I think, has has really done this in a way that sort of you can see it being in a line with all those great writers, with with Beckett, with Joyce, with Flann O'Brien. You know, and and it's just kind of really heartening to think that from different angles, this Irish thing is still capable of reinventing itself. Okay, interesting choice. I'm curious, I mean, do you, you obviously read a huge amount. I mean, do you read kind of pulp fiction? Do you ever pick up a, an awful sort of romantic novel or are, are you quite discerning? Is time too precious at this uh, stage? People are going to hate me if I say I don't actually read a lot of Pulp Fiction or I I just, I can't read stuff that's badly written. I just can't. I, just, <laughs> I really can't. I just stop reading it. I just I just find it. But also, yeah, I mean, there is a real problem uh, and I'm sure you have the same thing, you know, which is that, uh, you know, people in our business, you have to read so much professionally. Yeah, it can always be a Anyway, chore. and then I have, you know, I, I, I write essays and stuff so you're kind of you're always reading for that or you're writing a book so you're always reading for that so the amount of stuff you have to read is so large that when I get a chance to read for pleasure you it really know, has to be pleasure has to be you know, good stuff and, 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 <laughs> and you do feel I want, I want to get something back out of it you know and that's not saying um, you know uh, you want like something like Suitable Boy for example is, is pure pleasure I mean you know yeah. it's, not, it's not like that you're you're saying, oh, I must I must be learning something about India in the course of this. I mean, I hate didactic stuff. Yeah. You know? It has to be written with joy. And it has to be written with invention. And it has to be written with that energy that, that grabs you and sucks you in. But 
there's lots of really good stuff that does that, so I don't know why you would bother with the bad stuff. Yeah, no, fair enough. <laughs> I get that. I get that. I think life's too short. And just lastly, I have this image of you, which could be completely wrong, of you in your house in Glasnevin, a nice, comfortable leather armchair sitting back and reading. Is there is there one place you go to to read, or is it pretty I, much I, 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 I do have an armchair that I, that I read in. Um, the main thing about it's not actually the armchair, it's the light. <laughs> you know, is that getting old? <laughs> getting I think older. it is. But also, you know, do you remember they always just say you will ruin your eyes. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah. I was one of those kids who was, kid, who was yeah. reading under the bed covers with the torch, yeah. and you get caught. And they say you will ruin your eyes, and they were right. Ruins, you know, yeah. it ruins your eyes, <laughs> but it's worth it. It's only you know, it's, a, it's the best body part to ruin, and the best way to ruin it is to ruin your eyes from reading, uh, <laughs> and uh, it does so. And uh, I, I get into that grumpy stage where you go to a hotel, for example, on on holidays or whatever, and. And you start saying, "Where's the reading lamp? I can't read in this bloody room." You know, and it's, it becomes one of your one of your pet hates is is places where you can't read properly because they don't have a proper lamp. Okay, uh, fantastic. Uh, I just want to run through Fintan's choice again. Uh, just William, a suitable boy, a girl is a half formed thing by the Irish writer Emma McBride. The complete works of William Shakespeare and uh, the epic War and Peace. Fantastic choices, Fintan O'Toole. It's been a real pleasure to have your company. Thanks indeed for coming in. Today. Pleasure. Thank you. Now, here at Top 5 Books, there's a lot more interesting guests and book recommendations in our podcast feed if you're subscribed or following us on your podcast player. So if you're listening on iTunes, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe to the podcast. You might even give us a rating uh, if you've indeed enjoyed any of what you've heard. Also, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Chains Top 5 Books.